If you are new and visiting us this morning, welcome. Uh, my name is Brendan, and I'm part of the uh, pastoral team here at Sovereign Grace, and we'd love to get to know you, so make sure that you do grab one of the team and, and say hi. Um, we are continuing on this morning uh, in our series on Mark, and uh, oh, friends, I've been living with this passage all week. This is a very sobering passage this morning. This is a very, very heavy passage. Um, There are some things, uh, even before we get into the passage, just to to note as you read through it, you'll notice that verses 44 and 46 are absent uh, in your Bibles uh, if you open up to Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 42 through to 50, which we're reading And the reason why uh, 44 and 46 are absent is that uh, a well-meaning copyist many, many years ago, it appears, uh, repeated verse 48 a couple more times to make it a bit neater, Uh, whereas the original manuscripts, as God's word as we uh, have received it, do not have uh, verse 48 repeated several times, but only on one occasion. But friends, this, this passage this morning that we're going to read from, from God's Word is shocking. What Jesus is going to be saying to us is one of the most confronting, extreme passages that you will ever read in the whole of the Bible. And so I'm going to read it. And we're going to pray, because I need God's help to bring it to you guys this morning faithfully. So let's read Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to come down and and bow before you and your word, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. And Lord, we want to have a position of trembling beneath it, listening to it, Lord, and applying it, no, no matter how difficult and how sobering it might be. I just pray, Lord, help us this morning to hear it. Help us to hear your word. 
Help us to hear what you're saying to us and help us to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the spring of 2012 and I had my eyes firmly set on Michael. Now, for the uninitiated, Michael is not a person. Michael is a workout. Uh, Michael is an extreme workout, a CrossFit workout. And I had my eyes not only set on Michael, but set on beating Andrew Long's best time for Michael. I was determined. I was going to beat it. Uh, Michael is a very difficult workout. It involves uh, 50 uh, called GHD, it's not good hair day, it's a glute hamstring developer sit-ups, which is basically a, a plinth where you sit your feet here, or you, you sit your bottom here, you lock your feet in here, and you do a sit-up and you go off the edge and you come all the way up. So you do 50 of those, and then you turn over and you do 50 back extensions, and then you run 800 meters, and you come back and you do it all over again, three times. So you do 150 of those sit-ups, 150 of the back extensions, and you run 2.4 kilometers as quickly as you can. And uh, I did beat Andrew's best time. I beat it by over a minute. Uh, but that is not the point of this story. Um, the day after smashing Lungi's uh, best time, I uh, felt rather ill. In fact, I... Uh, could barely walk. And uh, one thing you should know about me, though, is uh, I thought this is nothing to be worried about. Uh, this is perfectly normal. Uh, I have a phobia of doctors. I hate going to the doctors. I didn't think this could be anything to be concerned about, despite the fact that I was peeing Coca-Cola at the time. In fact, my pee had turned the color of Coke, which is concerning to most people. I thought, I'm not going to go to the doctors, I'm perfectly fine, thank you very much. The next uh, day, if I was to sit in a chair, I couldn't even straighten up after sitting in a chair. I was in that much pain and continuing to pee Coca-Cola, something that should be troubling to most people, but to me, I was refusing to have anything to do with the doctors. Um, the following day, uh, an unusual phenomenon commenced, in which I began to swell and put on fluid. Uh, you might think this is troubling to most average people. Uh, in fact, I'd, I'd gone out on a trip, and every time I took down the stairs, I would jiggle a little bit <laughs> from all the swelling I was experiencing. Yet because of my self-denial and my phobia of doctors, I refused to see the doctors. And it wasn't until later that evening when I sort of, as... Uh, uh, Dave would describe, began to look like Santa Claus, that I uh, promptly turned up to the emergency department of Royal North Shore Hospital, um, in which case they ordered some tests and the doctor sat me down and gave me some very difficult news. And the news was that I had a condition called rhabdomyolysis. Rhabdomyolysis is where the muscle breaks down and the protein uh, overwhelms your system and begins to put you in renal failure. It's a very serious condition. In fact, it's a life-threatening condition. And uh, I was promptly admitted to hospital, uh, where I stayed for the next week. And uh, I was told I was not allowed to exercise for six weeks. Why am I telling you this story? Um, do you know what? I might not like the doctor's diagnosis for me in that moment. In fact, I didn't. Particularly the no exercise for six weeks bit. I thought that was terrible. Um, but it was truth I needed to hear. In fact, if the doctor looking at me uh, and my small physique was afraid of breaking my little heart and decided, nah, don't worry about it, buddy, just go home, he would be guilty of professional malpractice. The diagnosis may hurt, but I need to hear it. And the reason why I share that passage for us this morning 
is because our passage this morning, Jesus, our great physician, is giving us a really sobering warning. It's a sobering warning that's hard to hear. In fact, we, put, we may not want to hear it, but its aim is love. Because this physician has come to heal. The diagnosis this morning might be painful for us. But I think the solution that Jesus offers us is remarkable. And so I've titled this message, A Sobering Warning. A Sobering Warning. What is our physician's warning? Well, it's a warning about the nature of true discipleship. Jesus is giving his disciples a warning, and it's about true discipleship. And I have three simple points this morning, points that are characteristics of the true disciple. And I just want to acknowledge that I've borrowed these points. I, I heard the message. I couldn't think of any better points than those offered by C.J. Mahaney on this passage. And the points are as follows. Point number one, disciples protect others. That's our first point. And just painting a bit of context as we get and jump into this text and looking at it, is we've seen all the way back in 831 this real dramatic change in Jesus and his mission as he reveals what his mission is. And he reveals that his mission is related to his disciples' mission in that he has come to, to die on the cross, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and to die and three days later to rise again. And Jesus goes on to say to see how that mission is related to our mission as he challenges his disciples and instructs them in verse 34 of chapter 8, whoever would come after me, says Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And what we see uh, unfolding after this encouragement is that the disciples just don't get it. They really don't get it. In uh, 9, chapter 30, verses uh, 3 to 37, Jesus takes his disciples into Galilee in secret. And he begins to teach them again about his mission, knowing that they don't get it. And and what unfolds is, is that on the way to Galilee, the disciples are arguing with one another. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus has been teaching that he's come to give his life as a ransom. The disciples are arguing about who's going to be in the position of power in the kingdom to come. They simply don't get it. And so Jesus sits his disciples down and and he teaches them. And he says, greatness is the person who's the least. Greatness is the person who's the servant of all. More than that, greatness is, he calls to himself a child, greatness is the one who welcomes even the least disciple, like a small child. That's the person who is great. It's the opposite of what you might think. And then, as we saw last week uh, in Dave's great sermon, we see this, this, this interjection by John the Apostle as he sits with the other disciples and and he's got this misplaced zeal. Jesus is teaching about what true greatness is. And he jumps out there and says, Yeah, well, well, Jesus, you don't even realize that there's like people doing healings and trying to cast out demons in your name, but they're, they're, they're not following us. And we, we tried to smack him down. We tried to stop this guy from doing it, but he wasn't even listening to us. What's the deal with that, Jesus? And Jesus um, teaches them that, that whoever's for us is not against us. It's not about doing things in your name. Because what is apparent is these disciples are, in fact, like Scotty Pippen. Scotty Pippen was Dave's illustration last week, which is this famous basketball player who, in one of the great games in basketball history, refused to participate because he wasn't given the position of most significance in the final play of the game. He wasn't the one who was going to take the final winning shot And so he refused to even walk onto the field because he thought the mission was all about him. When it's not, it's all about Jesus. And similarly, these disciples who are still in this moment seated around Jesus at his feet still 
believe that the mission is all about them. And Jesus continues in his teaching. Teaching about the nature of true discipleship. I just want to pause before we actually jump into examining what God's word says to just, just a little note. You know, if, if you're a Christian sitting here this morning, I think it would be very easy to mishear this passage. I think it would be very easy to read this passage and begin to question your salvation. I just want to say that, you know, that's not what this passage is about. This passage, if you're a Christian, shouldn't discourage you or cause you to question your faith. No, that's not Mark's intention. It is a sobering warning for us this morning, guys, but, but its purpose is to encourage. Jesus' purpose with his disciples in this moment is, in fact, to reveal something of his profound love for them. And I, I believe we're going to see that as we unpack this, this sobering passage this morning. So let's get stuck in and let's begin by reading from uh, verse 42 of chapter 9. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, literally the word here isn't sin as, uh, in the sense of perform like a little, like tell a lie or something like that. Literally, the word here is to stumble. It's to fall into sin. It's to fall away from Christ. It's not just causing someone to commit a single sin. It's causing them to fall away from trusting in Christ, causing them to stumble and rejecting him. That's what Jesus is going on about. He uses this word repeatedly throughout our passage this morning. In verse 43 again, In verse 45, in verse 47, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Let's read it again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A great millstone. Literally, in Greek, it's a donkey's millstone. It's a millstone that's so big it requires a beast to pull it and turn it. This is probably a stone of some a meter and a half in diameter, a massive millstone, a huge stone powered by beast. And the picture is of someone having that millstone tied around their neck and then watching on as the millstone is pushed into the sea and The body is pulled down into the darkness, struggling and fighting and gasping for breath until the last breath is taken. And you can imagine in the darkness, a body that once was failing, now hanging lifelessly, pushed here and there by the the currents in the darkness of the sea. That's the picture. And Jesus is saying, better to die a horrific death than cause the least disciple to fall away from me. What's this about? Who is Jesus addressing? Well, notice the repeated use of Whoever, verse 41, just before Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Well, it most naturally then reads that whoever of verse 41 links now to whoever leads someone into sin or to stumble or to fall away. Jesus is responding again to the disciples' opposition to the man exercising demons. And Jesus' point is this. If you seek to oppose and hamper the ministry of others, actively discouraging them, tearing down their faith, 
leading other disciples into sin and to fall away from me, watch out. Watch out. Better to have a terrible death than die and face God's wrath. You see, true disciples are called to protect others and not to tear down their faith. What a sobering warning. If you are standing in opposition to other Christians, Jesus says, watch out. Danger. It's a stark warning to us as disciples. Our actions towards others have eternal consequences. You know, if you're someone who is constantly critical, standing in the way of the ministry of others, ambitious for your own gain, unwilling to heed God's word, leading others away from trust in Christ, the message this morning is danger. Watch out. But it's not just a warning. It's also a comfort for us this morning as well. Because I put to you this morning, church, it reveals the Savior's passionate care for even the least of his disciples. If you are even the weakest of Christians, if you are even the weakest of people trusting in Christ, the Savior's wrath burns against those who would lead you astray. He passionately loves you. And because he passionately loves you, he will passionately protect you as well. A sobering warning that disciples protect others, not pull down their faith. That's our first point. Disciples protect others. But not just protect others, disciples protect themselves as well. Read with me verse 43. And these shocking words. Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to end a life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Confronting. It's a shocking passage. It's it's not a passage that of my own volition I would have chosen to preach on this morning. And yet we're a church that's committed to expositional preaching. You know, whether you're a visitor or a, a, a member, whether a Christian or non-Christian, we, we, we choose to preach through God's word. And so whether I would choose to preach this passage or not, this is the passage God has chosen for us to examine this morning. And regardless of your background, you can't help but read this and feel uncomfortable. Chop off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye cause you to sin or if something causes you to sin or stumble or fall away, amputate is what Jesus is saying. But what does it mean? Well, the first thing I, I want to say to us this morning is that it, it, it definitely is not to be taken literally, but rather <laughs> metaphorically. You know, uh, there are people in church history who have taken it literally and uh, with unfortunate consequences. Uh, Jesus is not in this moment advocating self-mutilation. He's not. In fact, it's against the Old Testament law to do so. The Old Testament speaks clearly against self-mutilation. If only it was as easy as self-mutilation to fix our problem with sin. I mean, if I went and cut off my hand and cut off my foot and plucked out my eye, what you would have here on Sunday morning is a one-handed one-footed, one-eyed, 
man that still is tempted to sin. It wouldn't fix the problem at all. Jesus himself says two chapters earlier, uh, in chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, it says, and he said, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from where? Come from within. And they defile a person. You see, the cause of sin and death isn't hands and feet. Isn't eyes, it's hearts, it's what's inside. Well, what is Jesus speaking about in this moment? What is he referring to? I think Ken Hughes puts it best when he says, what Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. The hand, foot, and I encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizes what we do, the foot, where we go, and the eye, what we see. Jesus is saying, take drastic action against anything that could cause you to fall away from me. Take drastic action. If it were a hand, chop it off. If it were a foot, cut it off. If it were an eye, pluck it out. There is no sacrifice you could make to rid yourself of sin that in the end would not be worth it. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, because sin unchecked is... Deceptive, entangles, it ensnares, it hardens the heart, and it leads to falling away from Christ. In fact, amongst the twelve, sitting at Jesus' feet was one who would be ensnared, Judas. His greed would get the better of him. You see, Jesus is not saying that your works save you. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying be good or go to hell. What he is saying is do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to remove anything that might lead you to deny me. John Owen puts it this way, famously and so helpfully. He says says it this way, Be killing your sin, or sin be killing you. Be killing your sin, church, or your sin be killing you. You know, uh, coming from working in a hospital, we see this picture so often. The person who comes into the hospital who, who maybe initially had something as simple as diabetes and they lost the feeling in their legs and their circulation became poor and it starts with something as simple as even a scratch from a pet like a cat. That scratch turns into an ulcer. And that ulcer begins to grow. And they try to clean it out, they try to cover it, but grow and grow it does. And they try to even do a skin graft, but the skin graft fails because the circulation is so poor. And the leg, once healthy, now is infected, and the infection begins to spread. Gangrene sets in, and the foot begins to swell. And the only option left to save that life becomes something very drastic. Amputation. 
The consequence of sin, church, is so severe. Jesus is saying to us this morning, do whatever it takes to cut it off and save your life. I just want to remind us that this is Jesus' loving warning to us this morning, church. Note the intended effect of the warning in verse 43. Better for you to enter life is what Jesus says. Again, he repeats it in verse 45. Better for you to enter life. Again, he repeats it. Verse 47. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God. That's the heart of the Savior for us in this moment. He wants eternal life for his disciples. And so this is his loving warning. Jesus is saying, don't take your sin with you into hell. You see, Jesus in this moment is warning us against hell. He warns us against hell three times in this passage. The word that you read in your Bibles, hell, is the word in Greek, Gehenna, which actually refers to a physical place. It's the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which was a ravine in the south of Jerusalem, where two kings made it very notorious, Ahaz and Manasseh, because they would literally slit the throats of their children in offering them as child sacrifices to the Canaanite gods of Molech and Baal. It was a notorious place. Later in the reign of Israel, uh, the king Josiah comes in and he desecrates the place, uh, setting fires and turning it into a, a garbage dump. And it became a symbol in the Bible and in Jewish tradition of divine wrath and punishment. Jesus mentions it twice. He describes it as the unquenchable fire, the fire that does not end. And he quotes the very last of the book, uh, a verse of the book of Isaiah in verse 48. In Isaiah, um, Isaiah the prophet ends with this great vision of a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells with his people forever and his enemies now defeated Endure his wrath. And this is the final verse of that book. Isaiah writes, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. It's a vision of judgment. It's a horrible vision of eternal suffering and pain for those who have rejected God. C.J. Mahaney writes, Hell is the final judgment of God for those who have rebelled against him. For those who do, uh, do not turn from their sins and receive the gracious offer of forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ on the cross. Hell is just punishment for sin not atoned for. Hell is where the full weight of his righteous, furious wrath against sin is present and is eternally present. Hell is a final judgment in which the decision of God is irreversible and the consequences are eternal. Jesus' point is this. Don't take drastic action against your sin. Allow your sin to lead you away from me. And you will find yourself under eternal, just punishment of God. You know, I think there's a bit of a, a tradition in evangelical circles uh, more recently to describe hell as simply being separation from Jesus. And that's in part truth, but it's not what he says. 
Notice what he says. Better to die a horrible death than to face what is coming. Friends, this is a loving warning from the Savior. It's our great physician warning the disciples about the danger of their pride and jostling for position, warning Judas about his secretive greed and dishonesty and warning us about the true nature of, and danger of sin. Jesus is saying, don't allow your sin to take you to the grave. It's a loving encouragement to us. But it's not only a loving warning from the Savior, but I just think it has immediate application for us as well. Firstly, it should motivate us to rid ourselves of sin. We shouldn't move on quickly from Jesus' words to us here. You know, this passage, I don't know how you can help not just being deeply disturbed by what Jesus is saying here. It's something in it that should just spark in us a new energy to put to death sin in our lives. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, where in your life are you continuing to hold on to unrepentant sin? Maybe it's in the way you're using your money. Maybe it's certain things you are looking at on your phone or on your laptop or on your iPad. Maybe it's something secret that you've not told a soul. Maybe it's a place you're going to where you're tempted. Maybe it's a way in which you're using your time, less and less serving, more and more family or work or study or career. Or Maybe it's the things that you're saying. Maybe it's gossip or slander or lies or bragging. Maybe it's a good thing even. A good thing that now has become a God thing and you can't live without it. In fact, it's probably whatever you're thinking about right now. Jesus' warning is this. Sin is gangrene. Sin is poison. So cut it off. Pluck it out. Chop it off. Don't let it take you from Christ. Don't let it take you to hell. It's a loving warning. He wants to rescue you from sin. It's like the physician who warned me about rhabdo, except this physician is also offering the cure. This is the physician who came for us Not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the physician who's now, in this moment, turned his face and his attention towards Jerusalem. Where he seeks to instruct his disciples that he will suffer and he will die to purchase for them eternal life and hope. If only they put their trust and faith in him. Jesus is saying to us in this moment, no sin is so good that it's worth dying for, that it's worth falling away from Christ for. Don't let your sin turn into a stumbling block to trust in me. Even the costliest sacrifice to rid yourself of sin is worth it. That's what Jesus is saying. But not only should it motivate us this morning to rid ourselves of sin, I believe it should motivate us to share Christ with our neighbors as well. I just, it just, it just, I just can't help but read this passage and the warning and just feel my heart breaking for my neighbors. I mean, Dave preached a sermon long ago with that great illustration about orange jumpsuits where prisoners are waiting to be executed. But Jesus in this moment is teaching better that kind of death than to face what is coming. You know, what awaits people is something so far worse than, than simply death. It's eternal, just punishment under the wrath of God. Are you someone here that, that maybe this morning is is not involved in mission. If you reflect, you would come to the conclusion that you know few people and you don't really have friends who don't know Christ. This passage here this morning, it should motivate us 
not to come in self-righteousness, but to come humbly, to, to, to plead with our friends, to love them and share with them Christ, that they might come to escape this wrath that, that, that Jesus is promising for those that don't come to him in repentance and faith. You know, just walking through Waitara, I'm just always provoked by all the, the apartments and windows and lights filled with thousands and thousands of people here in our city who don't know him. You know, some people that, that I, I speak to, they say, well, you know, I can't, I can't do mission. You know, I've got nothing in common with my neighbors. And yet, as we read this, we we're reminded to reflect that they're people made in God's image, equally precious, headed for hell. Sobering warning that disciples not only protect others, but protect themselves from anything that may cause them to fall away from Christ. And finally, point three, disciples display Christ. And just a warning before we read this passage, uh, this verse 49 uh, this is one of the, in fact, most difficult verses to interpret uh, in the whole Bible. And so I am really resting on what other people uh, say at this point. Uh, verse 49, read with me. For everyone will be, Jesus says, salted with fire. For everyone will be Salted with fire. Most scholars see this reference of salt and fire together as pointing to the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you read uh, the book of Leviticus, you'll see salt was often used with sacrifices in a kind of purifying role. But rather than salt purifying disciples, it's fire purifying disciples. Kind of imagine someone with a salt shaker and out of it's like flames are coming out and you're getting salted but with fire coming down from a shaker that's the picture that that jesus is giving his disciples it's important to remember at this point that we're not talking about the fire that we've been talking about before the fire of god's judgment this is a different kind of fire this is not the fire of wrath this is the refining fire of persecution and trials jesus is saying do whatever it takes to get rid of any stumbling block to follow me, for you are going to be refined by the fiery trial. You are going to face testing, hardship. You are going to be salted with fire. You are going to be like a sacrifice on the altar. That animal lying on the altar ready to be sacrificed and I'm going to salt you I'm going to purify you I'm going to use fire to do it and I think Peter has this very passage in mind when he says in 1 Peter 6 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perseveres though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter's encouraging them that, that despite the trials that you're going through, God is going to use those to reform you, to purify you, to, to make you more like Christ. And it's all going to be to God's glory in the end. You know, Paul in Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to get rid of sin because you are going to face the fiery trial. I'm going to refine you through difficulty. And I've just seen that time and time again in the lives of different people. You know, I think about one of my great heroes in the faith, which is my dad. And the way that he's trusted and turned to Christ in and through just incredible difficulty with mental illness. Clinging to Christ. Salted with fire. 
incredible difficulty and pain leading to ongoing finding fire. Well, let's keep reading verse 50. And finally, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, salt was very important in the Old Testament. Um, And in the time of Jesus' writing, it was preservative. Uh, It was a flavor enhancer. But it could get mixed with gypsum and dirt and lose its ability to be used. And in the end, be wasted. What's Jesus talking about in this passage? I think William Lane summarizes it perfectly. He says here, salt typifies that quality which is the distinctive mark of the disciple, the loss of which will make him worthless. This can only be his allegiance to Christ and the gospel. The exhortation to guard their salt-like quality in order to be at peace with one another has direct bearing on the situation of strife which provoked the conversation in verses 33 and following. What is to set one man apart from another is not distinctions of rank or worth, but the quality of saltness, the quality of commitment to Christ and the gospel. See, the disciples had been arguing about rank, stopping others from doing ministry, not aligned with Christ and the gospel, but aligned with their own success and significance. They'd lost their saltiness. They were called to be different. They were called to display something radically different to the world. So the question I want to leave us with is, how salty are we? How much does, does my life display the distinctive qualities of Christ? Can people look on and, and, and see something different? A character that is different? A love for others that is radical? A willingness to welcome those that would be passed by by others? A humble seeking the good of my neighbor? A passion for life and care that goes beyond anything you see elsewhere in this city? Am I salty? Or has my life lost its saltiness? Has my life become mixed with career progression and home renovations and kids' sport and dance and drama and study and dreams of owning a home and paying off the mortgage and an easy lifestyle and travel overseas and selfish ambition. Jesus says, have salt amongst yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, disciples are called to display Christ. Well, in closing, oh, there's been some hard words from Jesus this morning and I just want to end with encouragement. If you're you're here this morning and you're feeling the biting sting of what Jesus is saying to us this morning, I just don't want you to despair. In fact, I want you to rejoice. I believe Jesus would want you to rejoice. And the reason is, is because he is working to change you. And that's why your heart is bleeding. It's been struck by His Holy Spirit. And Jesus has given us this warning as an expression of His kindness. He wants to help us. He wants to change us because He loves us. He died on the cross in our place and now He wants to mold us into His image. Because Jesus, like a faithful physician, has given us a sobering warning, a warning about true discipleship. The true disciples protect others. The true disciples protect themselves that true disciples display Christ. Let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, make us salty. Lord, would you help us? Lord, we... we We long to be faithful to you. And yet, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Lord, I thank you for your sobering 
warning this morning. I thank you for your commitment to care for us, your people. Lord, I pray that you would, even in this moment, be sending your spirit to remind us afresh of all we have in you. How much we need your help to change. Of the truth that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion of the day of Christ. Thank you for your kindness that you would care so much to speak hard words of truth and love to us. Help us to live in light of it, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.